Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Ephesians chapter 4, and tonight we're going to have an overview of the book of Ephesians, one of the great, great books in the New Testament. I would not want to say that one is better than another, but this book in particular has an absolutely wonderful and glorious message. And in preparation for our overview, let me read for you Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1 uh, through verse uh, 6. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. Ephesians is a book that fits into the category of what is known as the prison epistles. One of the things that is helpful when we study the New Testament is to ask, just how does this book fit into the other writings of a particular author? When it comes to the writings of Paul, there are those that are called the major letters or the major epistles, uh, Romans, First and Second Corinthians, and Galatians. There's also what is called the early or the eschatological epistles, that is First and Second Thessalonians. There's then the category of the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus. But then there's another category which is called the prison epistles, and with good reason because Paul was in prison when he wrote them, those books being Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. And so tonight we're going to look at the first of the prison epistles, the book of Ephesians. If you look on the very first page, I give you a quick thumb sketch of what is going on in this book. I do think the theme of the book is captured well in the simple statement, the glory of Christ in the church. And no book in the New Testament, especially of the writings of Paul, emphasizes more the wonder and the glory and the mystery of the church than does the book of Ephesians. Paul is its author, noted twice in the letter itself. Uh, the courier or the letter bearer was probably a man by the name of uh, Tychicus. Uh, the church was sent to Ephesus, located in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. The date of all four prison epistles is probably A.D. 60 to 63, during Paul's first Roman imprisonment. Sometimes people get confused here. It is the case that when Paul wrote Second Timothy, he was also in prison, but it was a separate imprisonment than when he wrote Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. I believe we have good reason to believe that Paul was released after writing these four letters. When he writes Second Timothy, shortly thereafter, uh, he would be executed. And so there is a difference between Second Timothy and uh, these four letters. The book follows a classic Pauline division. The first three chapters are very theological. They talk about the believer's position. 
The last three chapters are very practical, though there's theology there as well, and they talk about the believer's practice. If the theme of the book is the glory of Christ in the church, clearly the key thought is in Christ. That particular phrase occurs in uh, the writings of Paul more than a hundred times, but it occurs in the book of Ephesians 27 times. And so it's very crucial to Paul's argument that all that happens in the context of our salvation, of his bringing together Jew and Gentile in the church, is all because of our being in Christ. And of course, many of us know this familiar text in chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. When was the church founded? On Paul's third missionary journey, which is recorded in Acts chapter 18 through chapter 21, actually 18:23 through chapter 21, verse 17. And in particular, the 19th chapter gives extensive attention to Paul's ministry there at the church at Ephesus. Paul spent two years here. And actually, Paul spent more time in the city of Ephesus than he did any other city during his three missionary journeys. And there was good reason, because it was a major city, it was strategically located. Paul knew that if he could evangelize the city of Ephesus from there, he could also evangelize much of Asia Minor, which indeed did happen as the gospel extended out from the mission work there at the church at Ephesus. Look then at page two, and we'll just move through this quickly. As I noted, it is a prison epistle written, I believe, as we're going to see at the end of the book of Acts, that, that particular imprisonment. Uh, can we determine in what order they were written? Well, we'll talk about that as well. So look at number two, place of composition. Uh, There are two clear imprisonments of Paul in the New Testament, which are of some length. First of all, he was in Caesarea under the governorships of Felix and Festus. This is recorded in Acts chapters 23 through 26. Secondly, Paul was also in prison in Rome where he awaited trial before Nero, which is where he is at the end of the book of Acts when Acts comes to a conclusion. Secondly, then. Armed with a very small amount of early church tradition, some have conjectured yet another imprisonment in Ephesus during Paul's extended ministry there. However, this position is quite weak, and really, from the New Testament, there is virtually no support for a third imprisonment in the city of Ephesus. Letter C, then. The traditional view assigns all the prison letters, the prison epistles, to the two-year Roman imprisonment recorded again in Acts chapter 28 at the end, verses 30 and 31, approximately A.D. 60 to 63. So again, trying to get a timeline, we know that the uh, ministry of the Lord Jesus was around A.D. 30, give or take a couple of years on each side. So we're approximately 30 years after the ministry, the crucifixion, the resurrection, and the of the Lord. So there's not been all that much time. There's still eyewitnesses uh, about uh, the book of Acts has just come to a conclusion. So all of the planting of churches has taken place as we see in the book of Acts. And so we're still very early or at least midway through the first century and early in the history of the church. If this is correct, this would be Paul's first Roman imprisonment when he was under house arrest. And again, to keep the two imprisonments distinct. He writes Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon. He's in a house. He's got relative uh, uh, access to visitors. Uh, He is able to write. Uh, He has hope that he's going to be released. In contrast, when he writes 2 Timothy, he's in a dungeon. Uh, There's no one there with him uh, save Luke. 
Uh, he does not believe he is going to be released. You read Second Timothy 4, and Paul believes he is soon going to be with the Lord, and therefore they're radically different. And here he has greater uh, uh, access to do things, and indeed, though I'm sure he did not enjoy being in prison, I am grateful because it gave Paul the opportunity to write these four wonderful letters, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. And so I believe that is the better evidence, his first Roman imprisonment under house arrest. As far as the composition and the order of them, well, this is just mere speculation, but I'll throw it out for your consideration. Colossians, Ephesians, and Philemon were probably written about the same time. Indeed, Ephesians and Colossians have been called twin epistles because of their similar content. And Colossians and Philemon have been called sister epistles because of their common destination or recipients. Both Ephesians and Colossians are carried to their destination by Tychicus. We find that out in Ephesians 6.21, Colossians 4.7. Furthermore, Tychicus is accompanied by Onesimus, according to Colossians chapter 4 and verse 9, who is the slave who is returning to Philemon. So apparently... These three letters were delivered by the same group of individuals at the same time. In contrast, Philippians was probably written last of the four prison letters. It was written after the other three because Paul seems to indicate in the book that the verdict of his trial is imminent. He's optimistic. He's hopeful. But it seems to be that he is uh, fairly certain that his imprisonment is going to be resolved one way or the other when he writes the book of Philippians. Now, as I mentioned a moment ago, you go to chapter 1, verse 1, and the book says what? Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus. You go to chapter 3 for this reason. I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for you Gentiles. And so the book clearly affirms Paul is the author. Secondly, the early church was unanimous in agreeing that Paul was the author of the book of Ephesians. Yet, if you today were to go to, tragically, some of our Baptist colleges in North Carolina, uh, if you'd like, I'll be glad to tell you. If you were to go to Wake Forest University, or you were to move out of state and go to Furman University, are you to go to Mercer University? Are you to go to Stetson University? Are you to go to Richmond University? All of which at one time were Baptist universities committed to training ministers for the gospel. Almost without exception, the persons in their religion department would not believe that Paul wrote Ephesians. They would call it a pseudo false Pauline work, and they would give you all sorts of explanations as to why you just really can't believe in this day and time that Paul penned Ephesians. And since I believe that you all are a fairly intelligent audience, uh, just want to commend you this evening. Uh, I want to show you why some people argue that way, just so that you can understand. Maybe not to affect you so much, but uh, most of you do have kids that you are going to send to college or university. And boys and girls, your children need to be prepared for what they're going to be faced with and what is going to confront them. I, I grieve. Uh, when I was in Texas, it bothered me a lot that we would have uh, students go from my church to some schools in the state 
come back and basically be ready to jettison the faith, jettison the church, because they got seduced and they got uh, uh, laywayed by unbelieving professors in colleges and universities who would use things like this and say, you know, bless your pastor's poor little heart. I know that he gets up there and he teaches you week after week uh, that you can trust and believe the Bible. But you know what? That's what we call Sunday school faith. And Sunday school faith is probably good enough for your mom and dad and good enough for you when you were a youngster. But now that you're in college, you're ready for a real faith. You're ready to have your faith challenged. In fact, you're ready to understand that to really have faith, You need to have doubt, doubt about Jesus doing the miracles, doubt about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John writing the Gospels, doubt about, for example, Paul writing Ephesians. And once you begin to sow those seeds of doubt in the mind of those young men and women, you open the door for their faith to be shipwrecked. And so I want you to be able to share with them, look, here's what you're going to run into. But there are good answers for the questions and the doubts that will be raised by persons like that, perhaps where you will go to college or university. So why do they say, and eh, Paul couldn't have written this? Well, very quickly, vocabulary. They will point out there are a hundred words and phrases in Ephesians not found elsewhere in the writings of Paul. They will say the style of Ephesians is more complex and cumbersome than Paul's usual lively presentation. So that's one argument they'll give us. Secondly, dependence. And they will say, well, there's clearly dependence of Ephesians on the other Pauline letters, Colossians in particular. And by the way, surprise, surprise, many of them will reject Colossians as well. And so this alleged dependence uh, is an indication that the writer was not Paul himself, but one who freely utilized and appropriated, in our day and time we would call it plagiarized, uh, authentic uh, material of Paul. Thus they will say the similarities between Colossians and Ephesians are greater than that of any two other Pauline writings. They'll point out that approximately one-third of the words in Colossians are repeated in Ephesians. Parallels are numerous. So the fact is, Paul wouldn't have written two letters this much alike. But I thought they said back up there in number one that this letter was so radically different than everything else. So my question is, is it really different? And that's your problem. Or is it too much alike another book? And that's your problem. Well, I don't mean to be ugly to anybody, but you can't have it both ways. It can't be so different it wasn't written by Paul. But it can't be it's so much like Paul it couldn't be written by I mean, I hope that you see there's really an absurdity to that kind of thinking and that kind of reasoning. Then number three, they'll say, well, there's some doctrinal problems. They will say that uh, there are great differences between Ephesians and the accepted Pauline letters like Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, and Galatians. And so the differences are so great, the, the same author is very unlikely. For example, the theology of this letter is much more advanced than the theology of the apostle as gleaned from his accepted works. For example, in Ephesians, the church is this universal Wonderful mystery that God has brought into being that he did not reveal in the Old Testament. But in the other letters, oh, Paul doesn't think in these grand lofty terms about the church. He just writes.
writes to local churches and is very concrete, very practical and very simple in what he is doing. And so throwing out things like that, they will argue that this book could not have been written by the Apostle Paul. It is a pseudepigraphic. There's your $25 word. Or it is a false writing under the name of Paul, but Paul didn't really do it. Well, page four, here are our responses. First of all, number one, the vocabulary and the style. The fact that Paul resorts to a number of new words and expressions in this letter is not without precedent. And it's not all that unusual. He is dealing with issues not previously covered and therefore new subject matter requires different vocabulary. Now, underline that. That is so simple and, in my way of thinking, so self-evident. If, for example, I were to sit down and write a letter to Kenny Getz, the next day I sit down and write a letter to my wife, Charlotte, I bet you those letters would be different as to style, as to content. I mean, I might say to Charlotte, sweetheart, I can't wait till I get back home to see you. I want to tell you, my heart's just beating pitter-patter, pity-patter. I would not write a letter like that to Kenny Getz. I mean, it is not happening. And if I did, he'd probably send it back. And so it's not going to happen. Different audiences, different issues require, surprise, surprise, a different kind of style of writing and vocabulary. All right? Furthermore. The stylistic differences between Ephesians and the other letters may be indicative of these different circumstances. Paul was not facing the problems of a particular church when he wrote the letter to the Ephesians. Therefore, somewhat like Romans, but not exactly, he could be more reflective, he could be more general in his address to these people. Also, and this ought to have a star by it, Ephesians may have been intended to be a circular letter to other cities in the region, which I think is very likely, and therefore that has to be taken into account. In other words, if he intended for Ephesians not only go to Ephesus, but to Laodicea, to Pergamum, to Sardis, to Thyatira, i.e., think of the cities, the seven cities that are mentioned in Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3, and if Paul's intent, was that this letter would go to each of those seven cities, seven churches, then he would be more reflective, more general, not as specific, because he's not writing to one particular church uh, exclusively. All right? Secondly, dependence. This evidence is simply insufficient to demonstrate that the same author cannot be responsible for both Ephesians and Colossians. They are different because they're different situations, but yet there are similarities which would indicate a common mind. Thirdly, doctrinal discrepancies. While Ephesians may differ from other Pauline works in theological emphasis, his teachings do not contradict what he writes in any of his other letters. In fact, Ephesians is simply complementary or a complement to the other letters of Paul. And I'll even bring that out, dropping down to number four under letter C in just a moment. What are the arguments for the authorship of Paul? Well, number one, internally, the book says in 1, 1 and 3, 1, it was written by Paul. Secondly, externally, the church uh, universal accepted this until the 18th century with the rise of the Enlightenment, rationalism and higher criticism. Thirdly, the literary nature, the structure of Ephesians is in concert with the rest of Paul's writings. Theology first, practice second. 
And then fourthly, theological consistency. While Ephesians contains distinctive theological insights, and it does, it also contains common Pauline themes like God's gracious sovereignty, the centrality of Christ's work of reconciliation on the cross, and the distinctive ministry of the Holy Spirit. So my conclusion, overwhelming external evidence, the possibility of Ephesians being a circular letter, and the overall consistent internal data argues that Paul is indeed the author of Ephesians, that the date of writing would be during his first Roman imprisonment around A.D. 60 to 63, top of page 5. His theme then primarily is the glory of Christ and his church. And our life in Christ then brings both position and privileges, both individually, there's Ephesians 2, and corporately, there's Ephesians 3, 4, and 5. Now, I mentioned a moment ago that the destination is sometimes raised as being not just the city of Ephesus, but also as a circular letter to various cities in the area. I denote that there under Roman numeral number 5. I'll just let you look at that on your own. Drop down to number 6 then, the purpose of the book. In Ephesians, Paul reflects primarily on two major themes. Theme number 1, Christ. Jesus is the exalted Lord of the church. He is also the exalted Lord of all of creation. This then is related to his work through the ministry of the Spirit. Interestingly, the Holy Spirit is mentioned 13 times in the six chapters of Ephesians. Secondly, Paul is interested in the church. No book addresses more extensively and at greater length the privileges and the responsibilities of believers in the church, in the Christian community. Letter B. Unlike many of the other Pauline letters, in particular, I think of 1st and 2nd Corinthians, uh, Colossians, even the Thessalonian letters, Ephesians does not address specific problems in a particular church. Even Philippians, where you've got Euodia and Syntyche kind of having a hard time with each other, in Ephesians there is no evidence at all of a particular pressing problem that he needs to address. It really is a letter. Written to a church that is experiencing unity, uh, peace, uh, things are going well, and that is reflective in the book itself. And then letter C, quoting F.F. Bruce in his classic work, Paul, Apostle of the Heart Set Free, this document in large measure sums up the leading themes of Pauline letters and sets forth their cosmic or universal implications. For example... Jew and Gentile are now one new people of God with all the barriers being broken down. Indeed, in the body of Christ, there is no respect, no prejudice toward any person. Ephesians, therefore, contains a timely message of our day as well when sexual, racial, social, and cultural biases are still present. In Christ, there is an equity of position and Privileges, And if you want to know in particular where Paul really hammers this home, it is in chapter 2, verse 11 through verse 22. And in essence, Paul is saying, can you believe it? In this world where there is such bigotry, in this world where there is such prejudice, in this world where there is such hatred, and hey, just think about how Jews feel about Gentiles. Just think about the, the, the animosity, the hostility, 
just the, the outright hatred that we have toward them. Can you believe it? That God, in His uh, unfathomable mystery and unfathomable wisdom, has brought Jew and Gentile together in one body. We are now family. Now, again, for most of us, that's not such a big deal because you and I don't really have on our table a Jewish-Gentile controversy. So if I were preaching through Ephesians, and I got to chapter 2, what I would say is something like this. If Paul were living in uh, Wake Forest, North Carolina, uh, in Raleigh-Durham, North Carolina, and he was writing Ephesians today, what he might say is, can you believe it? God has broken down the barrier between white people and black people. Can you believe it? People who at certain situations, at certain times, had unbelievable hatred, anger, hostility, animosity, racism, and bigotry. Can you believe it? He has busted that wall and made all of us one big family. Now, the tragedy is, if I were to say that in a lot of churches, though no one would have the guts to say it out loud, in their heart they would say, well... Not in our church, not in our fellowship, because the racism and bigotry of the unregenerate heart, tragically, is still far too evident in too many of our churches. And so you want to see it how it's really broken down. You think of the white man and the black man sitting side by side on the front row. You think about a Jewish person and an Arab person sitting side by side on the front row because now they are of the same family in Christ because the Lord has broken down that barrier. And so that's the radical message of the book of Ephesians. That was the radical implications that it had in the first century when Paul wrote this letter to this church. It is a very, very relevant message for you and for me in the day in which we live. Now, as I've done in every study on page 7, I've given you a chart that will help you see how the six chapters kind of uh, unfold. For example, if you're looking at chapter 1, Paul wants you to know certain things, in particular your Christian blessings. In chapter 2, Paul wants you to remember the wonderful salvation that you have, both personally, the first ten verses, corporately, Verse 11 through verse 22. In chapter 3, Paul wants to challenge us not to lose heart in the Christian family because of this wonderful, marvelous mystery that God has revealed in the church. Then in chapter 4 and chapter 5, Paul says, All right, in light of who you are in Christ, this is the way that you ought to live. And we're going to look in just a moment very quickly at chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. But just thinking ahead, Paul says, Look in Christ. You're going to be a different wife, chapter 5, verse 21 through 24. You're going to be a different husband, chapter 5, verse 25 through 33. You're going to be different kinds of children, chapter 6, 1 through 3. You're going to be a different kind of parent, chapter 6, verse 4. You're going to be a different kind of slave and slave owner in that culture, in chapter 6, verse 5 through 9. In other words, being in Christ is going to make a tremendous difference in the way you live And in the way you walk, so he's very interested in Christian conduct. Then finally, it's almost as if he says, but to make sure you're able to pull this off and accomplish this, you need to put on the whole armor of God. And, you know, I was thinking about this the other day. In fact, two weeks ago, 
When I was in Memphis, Tennessee, uh, at the Stephen Alford Institute, I had my students preach through Ephesians. And as we got to chapter 6, it just hit us, perhaps one day. Why did Paul use that imagery of put on the whole armor of God? Well, if you think about it, 24-7, for two years, Paul was chained to what? A Roman soldier. And every day, Paul looked at that Roman soldier from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. He saw his helmet. He saw his sword, he saw his breastplate, he saw his sandals, and Paul began to think, you know, just as that soldier is armed for battle, we likewise need to be armed for battle as well. And he began to think, you know, that helmet that's on his head is in some sense like the helmet of salvation. That sword in his hand is like the sword of the Spirit, an offensive weapon, that shield, that breastplate. And on he went just thinking through how as a soldier must prepare for battle, You and I have to prepare for battle as well if we're going to do well and succeed and flourish for the glory of God in the Christian life. And so at the end, he says, to walk worthy, you better put on the whole Christian armor of God. Now, I think everything really does, in a sense, flow to and away from Ephesians 4, 1 through 16. So if you look on page 8, I've given you an outline there. And very quickly, it's been our pattern. Let's walk through these verses and just see what it is that Paul says is the mission of the church. I've often said to uh, seminary students, if I were starting a church from scratch, I mean just starting it from the get-go, I would sit down with my church and I would say, we need to study at some length. Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20, the Great Commission text. Acts chapter 2, verses 40 through 47, the birthday of the church. And also, we would need to look at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16, because here we have the picture, the pattern, or if you like, the mission of what a good, healthy church is going to look like. And so maybe perhaps tonight we will grade uh, Wake Crossroads Baptist Church in context. How well are we doing in the area of unity, in the area of our diversity, in the area of ministry, and in the area of maturity? And so what does Paul say? First of all, the church is to be characterized by unity. Unity in what particular areas, Paul? Unity in terms of your humility, Unity in terms of your theology, or if you like, there should be a unity in terms of behavior and a unity in terms of belief. Chapter 4, verse 1, I therefore, the therefore connecting us back to that beautiful prayer of Paul's in chapter 3, verse 14 through 21, I therefore, the prisoner of not Rome, not the Gentile world, the prisoner of the Lord, I am where I am. Because God put me here as his prisoner. I, as the prisoner of the Lord, beseech, plead. It's related to our word paraclete, which means to encourage. I like that one best. I encourage you to do what? To walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. Now, if you are a Bible marker like me, you should mark the word walk. It is going to dominate Chapter 4 and chapter 5. You see it here in chapter 4, verse 1. You'll see it again in chapter 4, verse 17. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind. You see it again in chapter 5 and verse 2. 
and walk in love. You see it again in chapter 5, verse 8. Walk as children of light. You see it again in chapter 5, verse 15. Walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. And so Paul begins by talking about our individual walk. You and me individually should walk worthy, appropriately, meeting the standard of the calling, the calling to salvation with which you were called. Well, Paul, what does that mean? He doesn't leave it to our uh, imagination. He tells you with all lowliness, perhaps for us better, humility, with all humility and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. What is Paul looking for in your life and my life in terms of our behavior? He is looking for humility. He is looking for gentleness. He is looking for long-sufferingness. And again, just in case you don't understand what he means by that, he tells you bearing, uh, hanging in there with one another in love. How do we do that? Well, we endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So a church that is walking worthy of the calling with which it has been called, a believer who's doing that, is going to be humble, gentle, long-suffering, loving. They are going to strive. That word endeavoring means to work hard at. I am going to work at keeping the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. If you reverse that and you say, well, we have a church where there is uh, hostility. We have a church where there is division. We have a church where there is hatred. We have a church where people have a short fuse. We have a church where people are rough. And we have a church where people are prideful. You mark it down. You don't have a church that's walking in the Spirit. And you don't have a church that is living up to the high standard that God established for us to walk in Christ. So first of all, he says, you're going to have a certain kind of behavior. There will be genuine humility. But... There's also going to be a sound theology because he says in verse 4, and you'll notice that the word one just occurs again and again and again seven times. In verse 4 through 6, Paul would say it really does matter what you believe because there is one body, there is one spirit, just as you were called in one hope. There's not many hopes of going to heaven. There's one hope of getting to heaven, just as there is one Lord One faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. By the way, did you see the Trinity? Verse 4, there is one Spirit. Verse 5, there is one Lord. Verse 6, there is one God and Father. So there is a Trinitarian uh, argument, a Trinitarian structure to the sound belief and theology that should be present in a godly, Christ-honoring, own mission for Christ kind of church. So the church should be characterized by unity. There is a certain way in which we should behave, and there are certain things we should believe. But now, secondly, there is a place for diversity, because a church that is characterized as a healthy church will be characterized by diversity. First of all, appreciating the Savior who gives gifts, 
And secondly, acknowledging and honoring those gifted servants that God gives us. Verse 7, look at what Paul writes. But to each one of us, no one is excluded. Everybody here tonight falls into that, each one of us. To each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. And then Paul goes back and quotes from Psalm 68. And for you Bible scholars who really like to dig into uh, intricate, uh, confusing, difficult text, tough luck tonight, I don't have time to mess with it. But verse 8, therefore he says, when he who ascended on high led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now, is it not also the case that the one who ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth. Who descended is the one who also has now ascended far above all the heavens that he might be all filling all things in all. Now, at least do this. I don't believe, as some people do, that Jesus went to hell and uh, preached to the spirits in prison, whether they be demons or unbelievers. I certainly don't believe, as the heretic Benny Hinn does, that he went to hell And he was tortured and suffered for three days at the hands of Satan and the demons. I think that is a damnable heresy, and I certainly don't believe that. Actually, what I think it means is simply this. His descent into the lower parts of the earth just means the grave. In other words, he came into this world, but not just into this world. He descended even into the lower parts of the earth via his crucifixion and his death. But the one who died... And descended into the grave is also the one who has ascended. And in ascending, he has gone back into the heavens far above everything that he might fill all things, that he might complete or permeate all things. And in doing so, here's the part that Paul wants you and I to nail down. When he went back into heaven, he left behind some wonderful gifts, gifted men, Gifted women, each one of us, remember, go back up to verse 6. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, if we were doing a study for several weeks over uh, spiritual gifts, I would direct you to Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 4. Let me just say this. Now, you hear me. Every one of us here tonight has a spiritual gift or spiritual gifts. I don't know that we can say you only have one. You don't have them all. But everybody here in this auditorium, if you are born again, you have a spiritual gift. That spiritual gift is essential for this church functioning in a healthy manner as the body of Christ. So I have two questions for you tonight. Question number one, do you know what your spiritual gift is? Question number two, what are you doing with it? Now, I'll tell you something. Unfortunately, in virtually every church that I know of, far too many people, the answer to question number two is nothing. Nothing. Oh, I come to church on Sunday morning. Well, I'm a super spiritual guy. I come on Sunday nights, too. And in fact, I'm super, super spiritual. I on Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday nights. I still have that question. What are you doing with your spiritual gift or gifts that God has given you? And if the answer is nothing, then you are clearly not in the complete and perfect will of God for your life because God didn't give you a gift for you to sit on it. God did not give you a gift for you not to use it. So the first thing for all of us is the answer is, what is my gift? Second question is, what am I doing in my local church with my gift to build up the body that it might be everything that God intends for it to be? Now, in particular...
Paul says in verse 11 that God gave some gifts as, I think, foundational gifts for the health of the church. And what does he say there? He himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists. And I think the best translation is, and some pastor-teacher. Not pastors and teachers. There is the gift of just being a teacher. But here I think he puts the two together and is the gift of the pastor-teacher. So here are some foundational Gifts are foundational, gifted men that are essential to the healthy diversity of the church. Now, very quickly, number three. Why does God give us these gifted men? That the church might be characterized by ministry. In other words, why does God give our church, for example, Pastor Bill Bullier? Does God give us Brother Bill so that Brother Bill can run around like a chicken with his head cut off, Trying to fix this thing, trying to fix that thing. Ministering to this people, ministering to that people. Just running himself ragged. No! Absolutely no. Ten thousand times no. That is so foreign to the teaching of the Bible as to be almost blasphemous. God gives us a pastor-teacher like Brother Bill for verses 12 and following. For the equipping of you. That's right. For the equipping of the saints for their work of ministry, thereby will be the edifying or the building up of the body of Christ. Thereby we will all come to the unity of the faith and to a full knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect or mature man. We will grow up to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now, Paul again begins theologically. And then Paul moves practically, and Paul says, look, when you are doing your work of ministry, when you are doing what God supernaturally equipped and gifted you to be and to do, here's what will happen. First of all, theologically, we will no longer be children, infants, adolescents, theologically in our thinking, tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. In other words, if I can just be blunt, you won't be theologically stupid. By the way, our church is filled with theologically stupid people, and we ought to be ashamed of ourselves. People who don't know the difference between being a Christian and being a Mormon. Between being a Christian and being a Buddhist. Oh, well, I know that for us, Jesus is the center, and for them, Buddha is the center. But if that's all you know, you're pathetic, and you ought to be ashamed of yourself. Paul says God's design for your life and my life is that we are equipped so that we can think soundly, theologically, biblically, that we won't be deceived and fooled by false teaching by the same token. Paul is not interested in us just having a full mind. Paul is interested in us having a whole heart and life. He says in verse uh, 5, but adding to that theology, speaking the truth in love. That we may grow up in all things into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom, and now he moves into the maturity stage, from whom the whole body is joined, knit together by what every joint supplies. You see, if I, for example, have a, a, a turned ankle, or I have a dislocated knee, or I have a broken leg, I may be able to walk. But I will walk poorly, 
I will walk uh, hindered. I will not walk and certainly not be able to run as effectively as I could if I were completely healthy. Paul's point is this. Here's Wake Crossroads Baptist Church. You are a body. How well are you walking? Are you running? The fact is, you could be running even better than you are. If some of us were doing what God supernaturally saved, gifted, and equipped us to do. But our church, any church, will never, ever do all that it could for the glory of God. Let all the members doing what God has gifted all the members to do. Hence, every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part, every part, does its share. Which then causes growth of the body for the equipping of itself in love. I just say this as I close tonight. We must have somewhere, I don't have them anymore, but we must have somewhere around here a nursery that uh, there are sweet persons in there taking care of small children. Uh, Is their ministry vital and important? You better believe it is. Uh, It would be a great tragedy and would be with great difficulty that we would be trying to study the Bible tonight if we had a bunch of screaming, whining, uh, 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 cantankerous, rankous children in here. You say, well, they just are babysitting. No, they're not babysitting. They're loving children for Jesus. And some of those people are so wonderfully gifted to do that. Now, some of you actually are probably gifted to do the same thing, but you've got a, you've got a wrong way of thinking. You think well, that's just babysitting. You never think of it. God equipped you uniquely to love on little people for Jesus. Who, by the way, and I've said this before, I'll say it again as I get ready to close. You stand a much better chance of making an impression for God upon a little person than you do a big person. Because big people like all of you and me are hard-headed. Stubborn, stiff-knit, stiff-necked, and as Paul says, uncircumcised of heart. God has to knock you flat on your backside to get your attention. Children are little sponges. Little sponges. That just soak in everything they get. And I want to tell you what, there's where you can make your greatest impact for the glory of, I'm telling you. Some of you say, well, I'm just, I'm too gifted. I'm too equipped. I'm just not, oh, forget all that. Forget all that. And step back and say, all right, Lord, how have you saved me? How have you gifted me? Where is it that I need to be locked in doing my part, my part, that this wonderful thing you call the church will continue to grow and mature to be measuring up to the fullness and the stature of Jesus Christ? It's a great challenge, but one I think this church is willing and hopefully by God's grace ready to step up and to meet. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the church. I hurt for those who don't have a church family. I don't know what they do when tragedy comes, when difficulties confront them. I don't know what they do when it comes to discerning who am I, why am I here, What's it all about? Because your word gives us beautiful, marvelous answers. We are here to glorify you. And we get to glorify you through this wonderful creation called the church, which is now the family of God named in heaven and on earth, the redeemed of all the ages, one day before your throne, acknowledging your worthiness and your awesomeness. But now we're this body that's growing and maturing to look more and more like Christ. 
And dear Lord, I would pray that you would do that for our church. That this church would more and more look like Jesus Christ in the way it believes and in the way it lives. In what it affirms and in how it loves. Lord, may we never look down our nose at anyone doing their part because every part is vital. Every person is important and necessary if we're going to be the church that you have called us to be. So, Lord, give us wisdom. Give us your grace. Fill us with your spirit. And may we all be involved in doing what we can to make this church that which looks like Jesus and brings great glory and honor to his name. For we ask and pray this in his name. Amen and amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We covet your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.